gentlemen. Uh, can I please have your attention? Daniel Digger! Dear listeners, this is Jonah Goldberg, host of the Remnant Podcast, brought to you by The Dispatch and Dispatch Media. Please go to thedispatch.com to check out all our stuff and uh, maybe become a paid member of the Dispatch community. So I have a, I have a little bit of an apology to make to listeners because um, our next guest is a first-timer, and that is entirely my fault. He should have been on here a long time ago, but um, part of it was... Um, uh, in the early days of the remnant, we didn't do that much foreign policy stuff. And then also in the, uh, it, there's also the, the, the usual intramural clannish rivalries between various think tanks that sometimes enter into <laughs> these things. And then the real, the, the major issue is, is that, um, our guest today, though he's a friend of mine, he's really Steve's favorite and kind of like Steve's. Uh, he's Steve's think tank pretty much and has been for, I don't know, like 10 years or something like that. And it always just sort of felt weird inviting the, you know, Steve is just like, this guy is like Steve's property. And, um, but I've, but he is also a contributor to dispatch. Um, and it was, he's long overdue. So I want to apologize to Tom Jocelyn, our guest today and to listeners. This, uh, he's one of the smartest, most interesting people. Um, around on 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 all things national security and terror related, he's a senior fellow at the Foundation for the Defense of Democracy, and he the senior editor at Long War Journal. Uh, Tom, welcome to the Remnant. Oh, thanks for having me, Jonah. Um, so uh, for people who don't really have a firm radar lock on who you are, may or may not subscribe to Vital Interests, which they absolutely should. Uh, or don't, or haven't read Long War Journal over the years. Um, uh, just tell people a little bit about yourself. You kind of fell over backwards into this universe. This wasn't what you, you didn't wake up one morning as a teenager and say, I will be an expert on all things Islamic terrorism, right? No, and I, as I was saying to you beforehand, I kind of uh, regret the day I made that decision for various reasons. <laughs> uh, I, you know, I started off, I was an economist or an economic consultant. Uh, I was working in New York um, on 9-11 and for years after 9-11. Um, I didn't have any connection to those events personally or otherwise, just to be clear. But our uh, sister company was um, destroyed uh, in mm-hmm. when the attack on the towers and I was running these uh, very large research projects, uh, research projects involving complex economic matters. And I sort of became obsessed with um, jihadism and Al Qaeda um, on, on 9-11, basically. And so I started scooping up as much data and information as I could, as, as a little research nerd that I am would do. I started scooping up as much information as I could and just became totally obsessed with it. And eventually that led to a career change and to doing all sorts of other things. Yeah, I mean, so I mean, just so I, I, every now and then, with when I talk to certain wonky people, I'll reference Three Days of the Condor, um, and uh, there's you know, in Three Days of the Condor, Robert Redford plays this guy who reads everything, and that's his job. He's like literally he reads everything and to find signal intelligence and all this kind of thing. And while I think it was you know, you know it was a little far fetched in all sorts of ways. Probably the most far-fetched part was 
that someone who looked like Robert Redford would have that job. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> but there are people in Washington who hoover up vast amounts. There are experts who hoover up vast amounts of stuff. And you're very modest about it, but like uh, you're sort of known as one of the the most encyclopedic people out there for the stuff that you look at and that you're better than a lot of CIA briefers when you talk to politicians. We don't have the name drop here. I don't want to get anyone in any trouble, but um, <laughs> you're kind of, and I'm, I'm not saying you're not a handsome man, Tom, but you're, <laughs> you're, you're kind of like the, the Robert Redford character in some ways because you just, you, you just follow this stuff in granular detail. So, um, and it's why Steve has sort of relied on you Steve's an idiot, so you know he needs. You're, you're sort of like his external brain that he just sort of carries around. Um, well, um, I, I mean, I certainly appreciate being compared to Robert Redford, uh, but you know, <laughs> basically I, the way I put it is: this, look, I'm just a nerd. I'm intellectually curious. You know, I'm always trying to learn things. I think you know one of the things you learn about this world is the more you know, the more you understand you don't know, and that's an old right. truism that a lot of people um, have come across way well before me, um, and. So even the things that I study very in very in depth, uh, spend a lot of my time, a lot of my hours, you know, hoovering up information, as you say, on still just so much I don't know and don't understand. And I'm, I'm consumed by trying to figure out as much as I can what's going on. And sort of what I'm trying to do with Vital Interest, by the way, the newsletter is, you know, I'm trying actually not a lot of times to offer an opinion on things so much as describe what I see is going on. Mm -hmm. um, now, on some of these issues, I have an opinion, obviously, because I've been doing this for so long. I can't not have an opinion. Right. Uh, but uh, but a lot of times I'm actually just trying to figure out, you know, what the different parties are saying, you know, and, and what they mean by that. And then let's go from there. All right. So let's 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 start sort of big picture and we'll 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 put the opinion part as the second part of the question. But like. Um, where are we at the war on terror? Is the war on terror over? Does the other side think the war on terror is over? Um, who is the other side at this point? What are the major, who are the major players and what is their orientation towards the West and the United States of America? Well, there's a lot of parts of that. <laughs> um, yeah. Pick, 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 pick dealer's choice. I mean, uh, you know, yeah. consumer's choice here. You can take what you want, but you well, know, well, I'll um, start, I'll start with saying, you know, look, I mean, one of the strangest things in all this, one of the, one of the central observations we've come across in doing this so many years at Long Word Journal and, and, and other work we've done, um, that I've done and some of my colleagues have done is that there's still, after all these years, not even a basic consensus on, you know, just a, a simple question such as what is Al-Qaeda? Um, mm -hmm. How is it structured? Who's who within its pecking order? How does it work? None of those, none of those questions have um, common answers or agreed upon answers, I would say. Um, and that's very curious. I mean, you obviously look at the U.S. is leaving, uh, withdrawing from Afghanistan, obviously, this year. And one of the strangest things about that war is that after all these years, you can't get a good estimate of what does Al Qaeda look like in Afghanistan right now? Mm -hmm. um, you know, there's all sorts of problems with the assessments that are made, and then the, you know, new data comes up that shows that those assessments are wrong, and yet the fundamental sort of paradigm for understanding these things isn't changed. So there, there are really a structural sort of epistemological problems here in understanding all this, and that's why your question, um, you know, has multiple layers to it. But it starts with it starts with that basic epistemological question: you know, what are we looking at? You know, right and my answer is that one of the things that the U.S. and a lot of analysts have gotten wrong in terms of understanding this stuff is they somewhat understandably look at these these issues, look at jihadism, look at Al-Qaeda through the lens of 9-11 and think, well, if they're not attacking us, then basically 
they don't really matter. They don't, they're not really in the game. They've sort of been defeated. Um, but you know, and there's a, there's a whole sort of, there's a whole bunch of things have been written sort of assuming that Al Qaeda was only ever interested in a 9-11 style attack. And that's not true. Um, you know, they, they were organized first and foremost as insurgents, you know, to, to wage guerrilla warfare, to topple Islamic governments and replace them with their Sharia states. And um, so if you look at it from that perspective, you could say on the one hand, well, look, they haven't executed another 9-11 style attack. There have been other attacks in the U.S., but nothing on that scale. Um, so their failure in that regard, true. Um, but in terms of sparking their revolution and waging their insurgency and trying to acquire power overseas in various places, that is much more of a mixed bag. In some places, they've made gains a lot more than others, but they are very much in the game. And the question is, what's the relation between these two things, between the terrorism targeting in the West and the insurgency footprint overseas? And, you know, there's a lot of a lot of people assume that there is no relation between those two things. That's not true. And then I, I don't I think far fewer people will assume that they're exactly the same, which I don't think very many people assume that. But that's not true either. But there is a relation to the, between the two. And as we go forward here, it's going that that's going to be the central question that the U.S. is going to confront is basically where do these insurgencies end up? Uh, posing a direct threat to the U.S. interests or the U.S. itself. So, right, with Al Qaeda, let, let's stay on Al Qaeda then. Um, where is it strongest? Um, is it is it sort of like Amway? Is it just basically a, fr- a franchise operation where you kind of get support in your in your territory, but you know it's 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 a it's a brand name that you kind of fly for various franchise purposes, but these are really insurgencies that could be called something else if they wanted to. They just think it's scarier to be called Al-Qaeda, or is there like a real hierarchy at work here? So that's a great question, and that actually gets to the heart of the the problems as I see it within the the counterterrorism field. A lot of people made the assumption that it was the equivalent of Amway, and Mm -hmm. then they just have to ignore all this primary source evidence and secondary source evidence saying that that's not the case. So for example, you know, you, you, you teased, you know, my relationship with Steve at the outset mm-hmm. here. And one of the things that Steve and I worked on was advocating for the release of the files captured in Osama bin Laden's compound. And the principal reason for that was let's, let's use, you know, the actual internal correspondence to understand what was actually going on. And let's get the answer based on that primary source evidence. And what that primary source evidence showed uh, which, and it really surprised, for example, the CIA and others who had to totally change their assessments of Al Qaeda after those files were recovered, was that there was this prevailing assumption that Osama bin Laden, at the time of his death in May 2011, was out of the game and he was no longer really involved in managing the day to day affairs of terrorism anywhere. He was just sort of a, a spiritual figurehead for this movement. And the files show that was conclusively wrong. Now, we didn't think that before the files were recovered. We had a different model of, of how bin Laden was working, and ours was much more, was much closer to, to accurate, I would say, um, to being truthful. Um, but those files showed, you know, really beyond a shadow of a doubt that not only was he still managing day-to-day operations of this global terror network, but in some cases he was micromanaging things as far away as Africa, you know? Mm-hmm. And so in Al Qaeda's scheme, it's evolved over time, but basically you can think about it this way. So bin Laden was the emir. Now that's Ayman al-Zawahiri. There's some rumors of his death, but, but none of that's been confirmed. And we don't see any firm evidence in that regard. Um, but um, there's this emir. Underneath the emir, there's a deputy emir or a couple deputy emirs. And then underneath them, there are a whole series of committees and that manage affairs, finance, military, this and that. And then those committees, what they do is they coordinate or try to coordinate 
the activities of what Al Qaeda's were known as Al Qaeda's regional branches. So, you know, you've heard Al Qaeda affiliates, right? Mm-hmm. So AQAP, for example, Al Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula or Shabab. This is to your Amway question. These are the sort of franchise. These would be the franchises that could be anything, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, in, in one model of, of understanding this. But in Al Qaeda scheme, actually, no, there's a whole series of steps that these groups have to take to become part of Al Qaeda. In some cases, they're actually directly groomed by Al Qaeda. And in some cases, they join Al Qaeda after the fact. But um, they are known as the region within Al Qaeda's parlance, they're known as the regional branches. And what they're known for is they're basically trying to establish emirates or Islamic states in their designated geographic regions. And then in their scheme, these emirates would link up and resurrect the new caliphate. That's the, their whole scheme. Now, they're a long way from that, of course, but that's how they think about it. Now, ISIS, for example, was just the regional branch of al-Qaeda in Iraq um, that grew out of this scheme. And al-Qaeda was very clear from the beginning they wanted to build a caliphate in Iraq. There was this whole idea that they were something new and that al-Qaeda really wasn't interested in, in building a caliphate, which is totally false. Um, but ISIS then broke away and, and did its own thing and tried to basically subsume al-Qaeda's global infrastructure and say, no, we really are the big bad caliphate in town. And so that's that's sort of a general overview of this. And, and now there's a lot of ambiguity about where we are today in this stuff, but that's the general sort of sense, uh, the history of that from really the last 20 years. So the, the deputy emirs, the deputy, the the uh, assistant emirs, the assistant to Iran, the regional the man- manager. The, the deputy emirs. emirs have been in Iran, by the way. The deputies to the, the senior emir have been in Iran for years, and one of them was killed last year. And this is one of those stories we've covered at the dispatch and vital interests and everything else that is not understood either. But isn't that interesting that the Iranians have protected the deputy emirs of Al Qaeda for all these years? But go ahead. Well, sure, that's where, where I was going. Is I want to know, like, so where are they? Are, are they are they all in Iran, or like some in caves? Are some in like <laughs> nice houses? I mean, like, how how does the how does an emir or a deputy emir of Al Qaeda spend his? And I'm assuming it's a his. Uh, <laughs> oh, it's always a his. Yeah, no, you're, you're talking about the most misogynistic groups on yeah. the planet. So yeah, it's absolutely his. Uh, their HR department has a really easy job. But um, <laughs> uh, how do they fill their day? I mean, are they? Is it? Is it? Is it something that is a full time bureaucratic kind of job, or is it a? Um, you know, you find out like in the movies, you know, some character who's like by day a shipping magnet turns out that in secret he's the, you know, he's the logistics coordinator for some terrorist organization or whatever. Um, are they hiding in plain sight? The Emir, the deputy Emir in, in, in Iran, is he living in a nice house, having a nice life? Or is he, you know, in some bunker that's technically given shelter by the Iranians? I mean, like, what's the organization like? Well, so... Up until recently, the, the two top deputy emirs have been in Iran, protected by the RGC, Iran's Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps. There's an old, long-standing relationship there between the two. Um, but other deputy emirs um, over time have been in Syria, where one was killed um, with this exotic weapon that the CIA and the U.S. military uses to hunt down guys. It's this, this, this drone missile that dispatches these blades that then slices the victim. I don't know if you've seen this. It's very, you know, pre- impressive piece of gadgetry. Uh, so one of, one of them was killed in Syria, for example. At times, other um, leaders of the, these these regional emirates, as I was talking about, these regional branches, for example, sometimes they could be up in the, the senior management pecking order. So, for example, Osama bin Laden's former aide-de-camp was in Yemen. This guy named Nazar al-Hashi was killed in 2015. He was the deputy emir at one point uh, in Yemen. So these guys could be really anywhere. They don't have to just be in one location. But they basically get selected for those positions because of their veteran status and how the, the respect within the organization and various other criteria 
And there is evidence. I mean, it's tough to say what they're doing at any given moment because obviously they're not advertising it. They're not going to sure. put their commu- communications out. But there is evidence that they are involved in managing affairs. Um, you know, not not always in the best manner. I mean, a lot of times they have problems, but there is significant evidence that over time they've been managing affairs for sure. And so it is a full time job. It's not like they're just they're not they're not just doubling as you said. Like a, you know, they're not like working for the local supply company by day and then you know change their hat at night right. become the Al Qaeda deputy mirror. That is their full time job. What is the, let's move towards Afghanistan here. What is the, re, what is the actual relationship between Al Qaeda and the Taliban? What was it to begin with? Has it changed? What, what do you think it's going to be? I mean, we're going to talk about the decision to withdraw sure. soon enough, but like, just what is the, I'm just trying to level set. What is the relationship between the Taliban and Al Qaeda historically and currently? I mean, they're intertwined. Um, so in this Emirate scheme that I was talking about, the central mission for Al Qaeda since 9 11. Um, really has been to resurrect, um, well, at least I should say since two, late 2001, has been to resurrect the Taliban's Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. Because in their Emirate scheme, that is the religiously justifiable and legitimate Emirate in South Asia. Um, in fact, it was the only one at this time in 9-11 that's created a liability for Al-Qaeda because their actions led to the toppling of the only, in their scheme, their only legitimate Islamic Emirate out there. So they've been devoted to resurrecting it. And there's you know, it's, it's interesting when you ask me this question of, you know, what's the relationship between the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, my brain starts pinging all these, <laughs> the work of all these people that is just so full of nonsense through the years. You know, one of the things, one of the things that uh, I've, I've been very loud in criticizing is what I call this disconnect the dots stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, it, and part of the reason why this war became so confused and the U.S. really lost its way is that there was this whole, I don't want to call it school of thought, this whole school that basically pretended that the Taliban and Al-Qaeda were mutually distinct organizations. And that's just simply not true. I mean, so just to, I could give you a thousand examples off the top of my head of why it's not true, but I'll give you one. Mm-hmm. So the current deputy emir of the Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan, which is what the Taliban calls itself, is a guy named Siraj Akhani. He's the son of another guy named Jalalan Akhani. Jalalan Akhani was Osama bin Laden's first benefactor, really. The first guy who really took bin Laden in and incubated the first generation of Al-Qaeda. In some ways, the Akhani's were Al Qaeda before Al Qaeda, uh, in mm-hmm. terms of ideologically outlook and what they what their goals were. And there's and Jalaluddin, the father who since passed away, um, he helped Bin Laden escape from Tora Bora in 2001, for example. So this is a guy who was who's very intertwined with the history of Al Qaeda. Uh, Siraj Akhani, who's now the deputy emir, Bin Laden files which we fought to get released. Plenty of other evidence shows directly working with Al Qaeda throughout this whole entire period. You know, um, on an operational level, on the ground in Afghanistan, and in, in other ways as well. Um, this is a guy whose whole dossier is filled with Al Qaeda connections. I mean, you, I mean, at some point, it gets to the point where you, you wonder, you know, is Siraj Akhani really part of a distinct organization, or is he just part of this Al Qaeda overlap? You know, basically, right. he's just existing in all these things. That's just one example. And there are many other examples. So the relationship is much deeper and much more intertwined than a lot of people uh, want to believe. Um, the whole premise of the U.S. talks with the Taliban, which I'm sure we're going to get to here, was this idea that you get the Taliban to break with Al Qaeda. But as I came to learn, the people who were pushing that didn't actually understand the relationship or what the criteria would be for what that break would actually look like. And so that's part of part of the, the whole story here. Um. So. And by the way, the nerd in me is just regretting the other thousands of pieces of data that 
I would like to use to answer your question. But no, for, I know. For it's your listeners' sake and your sake, you. I won't. I won't. I won't filibuster. You know. No, so. I know. I. 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 I have to admit, I was. I was worried that you were going to do that to me and like say. Oh, I can get like, going. Believe me, if I. I haven't had. I haven't had five cups of coffee today, so I've only had two. And the fast talking New Yorker in me comes out, and I start spitting <laughs> out all these names, and it just gets to be a mess. And my when I used to go on TV, my mom would call me up afterwards and goes, "Look." Stop using those Arabic names. Nobody knows what the hell you're talking about. You're just yeah. confusing everybody, you know. So I said, "All right." So I, I've tried to simplify it over time, but I still have to use some names, you know. I know. I appreciate. It. Uh, back when I was a television producer, we would, um, you know, you'd have you'd have to edit people down to oh, like yeah. stand by, you know. And I, and I was like very geeky wonky. I literally produced a TV show called Think Tank, and <laughs> um, uh. But the most legendary guy who's brilliant at this was um, Henry Kissinger. Because what Kissinger would do is not only would he answer your question by saying something like, there are six reasons why this is so. But number one, which is related to numbers three and five. And then when you get to three, he'd be like, and third, which is, is relevant to both my first answer and what will be my fourth answer. So you couldn't edit out any of it because he was always <laughs> referencing back to stuff he had said a minute ago. Um, but anyway, uh, that's you skipped ahead here, here, by the way, I was, I was hoping you, we would get to China and Kissinger by the way, because, uh, and I won't, I don't want to tease with my conclusion, but after, I've read everything that I could get my hands on that Kissinger has written. Uh-huh. And I've very closely followed his career, uh, through the history books. And I've come to consider him the Bernie Madoff of the foreign policy establishment. So we will get to that. Yeah. Um, okay. So let's, let's, let's just jump the gun. What um, I, let me, I'll lay my cards on the table. I am flummoxed by the um, up as a pundit, totally understand why we're getting out of Afghanistan. Sure, everyone's exhausted. Trump laid down the groundwork so that there's the right flank won't complain because they're all on record saying no more forever wars. Let's get yeah. out. Blah 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 blah. The left has been saying that for twenty years or eighteen years or whatever. So um he's covered, you know? And, and so when everybody already agrees with you, it's remarkable how little argument you have to provide to convince people. <laughs> and, yeah. and so like, I, I'm just, but I'm astounded that just with an eye to history, how bad the argument is, you know, when they say it can't be conditions based, that's just a fancy way of saying it's unconditional. And, um, even even if I agreed with getting out, like if you said, Jonah, we need your, if I had the approval and uh, to, if I had to give approval to withdraw and I was like, okay, well, look, I can't stop you, but for heaven's sake, don't tie it to the 20th anniversary of 9-11. This is the dumbest friggin' thing I've ever seen in foreign policy. It's just such an unforced error. And um, so I think it's, I find all of the arguments just basically unpersuasive. Um, I there are very few issues where I would be more happy to be wrong. Yeah. Um, but the fact that you know every time I mean it's not just people like you or Steve or whatever you know you bloodthirsty warmongers. I'm talking <laughs> about like you know like you know uh, what you know David Ignatius and uh, Dexter Filkin all these guys I've seen them in interviews on TV. And they're all basically, even like the people they interview on NPR, they're all like, yeah, you know, I mean, we can hope for the best, 
but there's probably going to be a civil war and yeah, the, all the progress we've made with women there is going to go away, or at least that's the most likely scenario. And, you know, some people say it won't be like the fall of Saigon and some people say they hope it won't be like the fall of Saigon, <laughs> but I just, you don't hear serious arguments out there I'm from in the media that camp. would I like to get Biden's back Saigon. about it. Yeah. So like, what is your, your overall take on it? Am I wrong about this? Am I missing something? No, I mean, look, if you're not ambivalent about this, or if you don't have conflicted feelings about it or thoughts about it, then you're not really thinking about it, right? I mean, yeah. you know, it's funny. I wrote, I wrote something at Vital Interest, and uh, I think it was probably my last newsletter in Afghanistan. Believe me, folks, I don't want to write about Afghanistan anymore. <laughs> Part of the reason why I'm doing Vital Interest is I want to write about other things, you know, that I've been researching. Uh, but, you know, I, I wrote the, one of the last pieces, and one of the, the readers uh, wrote, uh, you know, thank you, Thomas, for giving an unambiguous opinion on what you would do about Afghanistan. And I read that. I thought, man, I am a terrible writer because if my, <laughs> if my ambivalence did not come across, hasn't come across by this point, then I must be really horrible at communicating because I, believe me, I, I can make the case for staying. Sure. Uh, as an intellectual matter, but I think you've drawn the right distinction between, um, and I, I did as well between the emotion of Biden's speech, president Biden's speech on the withdrawal, and then the intellectual arguments, uh, underpinning it. Um, you know, if you, if you ask me, you know, do I want to send more American service members to Afghanistan? My answer is no. Like my guttural reflexes, I don't, I don't want to deploy American family members to Afghanistan anymore. Right. If I, if I were just doing it from that perspective, I'd say, look, you know, I can articulate the failures here. I, I think probably better than just about anybody, uh, just mm -hmm. in terms of the leadership failures, because one of the things that, Long War Journal, we've been doing Long War Journal for years, is articulating and documenting the failures. I mean, across the political military class. And it, it's grim, grim stuff. It's bad. You know, I mean, it's, it's going to take a whole book to really get all this out for me, you know. Uh, but uh, my colleague Bill Rosen and I are going to do that book. Um, but, you know, so if somebody says, look, I just went out, forget it. I'm not going to argue you're, you're wrong from that perspective, right? It's the intellectual side of things when uh, President Biden or others try and articulate why. It doesn't matter from this or that perspective, security perspective, or from a terrorism perspective, that things start falling apart pretty quickly. Um, you know, in fact, you just mentioned all the different answers that you've heard from the, the sort of pundit class give from mm -hmm. women's rights to this or that. But none of them are answering it from the perspective, well, what did this mean to the jihadis, right? What does this mean right. to the jihadi movement and Al-Qaeda and what they've been trying to do all these years? You know, what, why is it that this could be problematic for us? And the reason it could be problematic for us is that they could now say that they beat the second superpower in Afghanistan, and they, they're going to resurrect in whole or in part Islamic Emirate of Afghanistan. And this sends out a victor's message to tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of jihadis around the globe. And we saw what the victor's message did with ISIS, right? In 2013, mm -hmm. 2014, when they gathered territory and said, you know, we've, we've now really built the caliphate. It just emboldened all these different security threats. And I, I fear that people are underestimating that part of the dynamic here and what's coming, uh, you know, especially since this is just next door to a nuclear armed state in Pakistan that happens to be teeming with jihadis, you know? Uh, so this is a, this is a very problematic thing, but so I, I think I try and divide it into two, my, my perspective. And the reason why I have deep ambivalence about this is if you ask me from the American military members, uh, American taxpayers perspective, where we wasted a lot of money, American uh, military service members perspective, I'd say, yeah, I, I got it, you know, get out. If you ask me from the nerd who's been studying this for all these years, you know, what is getting out do? I have a bigger problem there uh, with, with withdrawing. And I also have a problem with the way in which the U.S. has extricated itself from this. 
throwing the government of Afghanistan under the bus, which I mm. think that is a, a moral disgrace. I mean, that's that's and that's what's happened now across administrations. That really doesn't make any sense to me morally or intellectually. Yeah, I had a very good friend, um, older Australian fellow by birth, who was uh, who I knew from I first met from National Review events. He was a supporter of the magazine. And he was a surgeon in Vietnam and um, could not keep from losing his temper if you brought up the, if you brought up Kissinger, <laughs> if you brought up yeah. you know, anyone who voted for withdrawal, because he saw what happened. I like him he already. Ended up, <laughs> he ended yeah, up adopting, yeah. Yeah. I don't know, a half dozen Vietnamese kids and, and paying for a school in Vietnam because he was so, he, yeah. so many of his friends were slaughtered. And, um, and that doesn't mean that the yeah. South Vietnamese government was not corrupt or, um, you know, same thing with the government of Afghanistan. Exactly. Yeah. It's the yeah. same thing. I mean, it's, it's still, there are a whole bunch of people who put their life, literally their lives in the trust that the United States was going to keep this project going. And I, again, that's not, I think we can both agree that alone is not an argument for staying in Afghanistan, right. you know, American interest trumps that, but it also should be a factor about how you do the withdrawal or how right. you get out as just as a, as a moral matter. And, and, and you know, and one of the best things that Biden seems to have going for him in this regard is that there's no ocean for refugees to do um, massive boat people. You know, you can't, you can't get from Afghanistan to, you know, the U S shore that way. But I think there's going to be a massive refugee crisis, maybe not during Biden's term, but I mean, it just seems inevitable to me. But anyway, I mean, like, have you heard a, a interesting, I'm not saying persuasive, I'm just saying like, huh, hadn't thought of that reason why you would pick 9-11 as the deadline? <laughs> no, I mean, this is, I mean, immediately when I saw that in their press reporting, I had the same reaction you did. And I said it to one of the journalists who quoted me on it. I mean, to me... See, this is this is my big problem with all this. To me, what it says to me is that basically the political elite here understand 9-11 as significant and as a tragedy for Americans, but they have no ability to contextualize it, especially when it comes to the fight against Al-Qaeda, the jihadis, ISIS, and others, right? And the Taliban. They have no they have no understanding of how 9-11 sits in their right. scheme of things and what it means to them uh, to do this. And my response to the journalist who I was talking to was pick any other day, right? August 13th, you know, August 2nd, whatever, you know, get out now. Why are you even waiting? You know, I mean, if, if you, right. if you want to get out, just get out. And I, I've been saying that since 2018, by the way, when Trump first went down this, this road, I mean, you know, there's no reason to play, to do this whole theater of the spec, uh, this whole ridiculous charade that's been going on with these talks with the Taliban, which we can get into if you want. Um, there's no reason to do that. If you just want out, just get out, right? You don't have to do all this, uh, you know, and so to me, that that was what picking the 9-11 end date meant was that they didn't really even, they don't even really understand what that date means to the jihadis. And by the way, the Taliban has never acknowledged or apologized for its role in harboring senior Al-Qaeda leaders and the hijackers, setting up, allowing these training camps to come in where Al-Qaeda, according to the 9-11 Commission report, you know, between 10 and 20,000 uh, jihadi recruits went through Al-Qaeda-sponsored camps in Afghanistan between 1996 and 2001. Uh, you know, they, they've never acknowledged any of that. In fact, what the Taliban says is they rub our noses at it. They say you deserved it. Uh, th that's the last thing they've said about it. So, you know, it basically, it just shows how this, this event has, has significance for Americans and for the political class, but it's sort of unmoored now from 
what the actual context is within when it comes to fighting jihadis. So one of the arguments you do hear, not about the date, again, I've not heard a single argument for the date that passes a laugh test for me, but one of the arguments that has some, some, some plausibility to it is that while, yes, it, it would be a problem if Afghanistan once again became a safe haven for terrorists and a trading ground and all that kind of stuff, the fact is there are lots of places that are better located these days for safe havens and training grounds. And so going to Afghanistan isn't necessary the way it was 25 years ago. What do you, what do you make of that? Well, I mean, there's a lot of truth to that. I mean, one of the things we've been doing at Longworth Journal is documenting how this thing spread out over time, you know, and how the external operations capability, which is what they're talking about, but they don't specify it, being that part of Al-Qaeda that's dedicated to attacking the U.S. and Western interests has absolutely been dispersed across several different countries. We've tracked operators responsible for that in Syria, Yemen, Africa, elsewhere. Um, so that, that part of it is true. What I've always said is it's not it's not about the narrow sort of stopping the next 9-11, because if you actually get into the history of 9-11, they kind of got lucky, you know, in a lot mm -hmm. of ways on that. Like there's a lot of ways that could have failed. And even if they even if they were to plan another 9-11 style attack from Afghanistan tomorrow, it doesn't mean it's going to be successful. Right. Mm -hmm. um, there's a lot of ways. And a lot of failed. it was planned in Hamburg anyway. Right. I mean, well, actually, I don't I don't agree with that one. No, uh, uh -huh. the, the Hamburg stuff was they, that's where some of the pilots, the pilots were recruited. Um, but the planning didn't actually take place there. That okay. was sort of the, but well, no, no. One of the arguments against the Afghan war is that you didn't need to go to Afghanistan in the first place because it was planned in all these other places. And actually what yeah, happened, but we was, had already bombed Hamburg like 40 years earlier. <laughs> yeah, right. So I mean, like, what's the point? Yeah. Right, right. No, but actually what happened was recruits came from Hamburg to Afghanistan where they were selected for the mission and indoctrinated and told what they were going to do. And then they go back and that's when they do the tactical stuff. But I mean, the real planning and the training and practicing slitting the goats and sheep's throats so they could go after passengers, that all takes place in Afghanistan. Um, but so, yes, it's true that you can do that type of training and that type of planning now in a, in a number of different places. What, I, what I'm looking at, however, is sort of how this impacts the broader, it becomes basically a shot in the arm for the broader jihadi movement to say that they beat the Americans in Afghanistan. That's the mm -hmm. bigger thing I'm worried about. And I think that that will increase the threat spectrum sort of across the board, not just in um, Afghanistan, from, coming from Afghanistan and Pakistan, but elsewhere too. I mean, think about it this way. So President Biden in his speech, he says, well, you know, the threat now, we have to deal with all these other places, right, uh, that we're worried about. Um, the threat from so we can't be so focused on Afghanistan. Well, that doesn't mean there's no threat from Afghanistan or Pakistan, right? There is still mm -hmm. a threat there. Um, so that doesn't negate that there is a threat there. But when he lists the other groups, first of all, he says al-Nusra in Syria. Well, there hasn't been a group known as al-Nusra in Syria since 2016. It went through this complicated rebranding process, which I will not bore you with, because believe me, <laughs> if you want, if you want, if you want to get into jihadi infighting and problems, it's fascinating, but your listeners are gonna start snoozing on us pretty quickly. Uh, you know, but in any event, one of the leaders of one of the Al-Qaeda groups in Syria today is a guy known, known as Farouk al-Shami. And he was a trainer in pre-9-11 Afghanistan who trained Al-Qaeda fighters to go fight for the Taliban. And, you know, he's looking to success and victory in Afghanistan as a vindication for him and his movement and his goals, you know, and his organization, Al-Qaeda. You go to the head of AQAP, another veteran of the Afghan Jihad. Um, who's respected by the Taliban, including their media. I won't get into the details there. But another guy was looking toward this saying, AQAP was mentioned by Biden, President Biden, right? And he mentioned Shabab and Somalia. Well, Shabab and Somalia is, is just as all the other Al-Qaeda branches, what they've done, they swore their allegiance to Ayman al-Zawahiri, the emir of Al-Qaeda in this scheme, and then threw him to Habutul Akhanzada, the emir of the Taliban, who they call the emir of the faithful, which is this term they use for the caliph. 
So it's true that this this thing is spread out and you have these different parts and the external operations capacity is now spread out. That doesn't mean there's no threat coming from Afghanistan and Pakistan. Also, this whole thing is looking to Afghanistan as, look, we can win, right? We can win. And that's a big deal. That's a big deal. Also, I mean, I think reasonable people can agree or can 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 argue that, you know, as the Biden administration does, that we need to be looking at bigger geopolitical competitors sure. like China and Russia and not, you know, terrorism stuff and forward, not backward, all that kind of stuff. That's all fine. I mean, I mean, we could have disagreements on the details of what that would imply and blah, 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 blah. But that's not an unreasonable position on its face. That's in fact, I've, I've endorsed that in vital interest. You know, I, I would just say one thing about that real quick and I, I don't want to cut you off, mm-hmm. but here's one thing about that real quick. The, the problem with that argument, I agree with that argument. The problem with it, however, is that the U.S. already largely pivoted away from the large, big expenditure, big ticket items in this fight against the terrorists a long time ago. That's right. part of what's missing here in this whole equation, right? Is that, you know, you had you had less than 10,000 troops across Iraq, Syria, and Afghanistan at the time that President Biden announces the withdrawal from Afghanistan. It's, it's not the case that Indo-Pacific Command, which has more than four times the personnel of any other combatant command of the U.S. military, including CENTCOM, which ran these wars, right? It's not true that their their resources are seriously hamstrung by, you know, a, a small contingent standing up the government of Afghanistan, the government of Afghanistan, right? You can make other cases, other arguments against it, but that part of it never really rung true for me. Sorry. Yeah. I mean, all I was going to say is that, that, and that's helpful, but all I'm going to say is that if, if you, if you, if you take that position, um, which again, I agree is a reasonable position to take, having a state-of-the-art airbase in Afghanistan is not a bad thing, you know? I mean, like, it's it's in the neighborhood of a lot of those geopolitical players that we're supposed to be concerned with. And it, so my point is, you can make a real politic argument about staying in Afghanistan that is consistent with the policy that people are expressing for getting out of Afghanistan. To it, like, having on-the-ground capabilities for uh, intelligence gathering, for drones, for military strikes, basically at the intersection of India, China, and Russia is useful, you know? And and like and, and people seem to think, oh, no, no, we have to pivot to China and Russia. And as if, if we fully did this in the way they imagined, you wouldn't want to have an airbase in that neighborhood. It's just sort of weird to me that no one's talking about it. I mean, am no, I wrong? That's I mean, true. No, that's true. I mean, I, I always say, look, I, I agree with that argument. I, what I would say is I've always tried to keep it within the four walls of the Afghan war itself, because if we can't justify what's going on there in Afghanistan, then I, I can't get to that next layer, basically, of what you're saying. But I agree with the ne- what you're saying. I mean, especially just the Chinese, the Chinese Communist Party's uh, you know, fear of encirclement, you know, mm-hmm. you know, it sort of definitely gives a, a bargaining chip in, in that regard. But it also... You know, if you think about the second order effects of this, I mean, you know, who's who's freaking out the most about the jihadi menace running and rising out of Afghanistan? I would say that the Pakistanis should be because they have miscalculated here. The jihadi Frankenstein could very easily mm-hmm. be coming for them that they helped create. But the Indians, who are our key part of this posture against the Chinese and what China's trying to do, the Indians know now that this threat, this resource that was constrained with fighting NATO and the U.S. and the Afghan government could very well be freed up to come after them and come after other targets in Kashmir and everything else and boost it. And you can already see that the the groundwork for that's already in place. The question is, you know, how much more spills over now, you know? And that becomes then an issue for them while we're trying to deal with them in this great power rivalry with China, that then becomes a bigger issue for them to have to deal with, you know? So it's, 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 none of these things are, what you're getting at, I think, is that there's this idea that you can, 
you know, say these things are all mutually exclusive and they're really not right. There's right. all this, there's all this stuff is interlinked in ways that are complex and, and create problems. Yeah. Look, my point isn't that we should stay in Afghanistan to hold yeah, on to our, our imperial base. My point is if right. you actually want to get, if, if you think the important thing is to pivot to more traditional great power rivalry politics, yeah, yeah, I got then it. You yeah. would, you're the one who should be saying, let's keep that base. Not me, sure. you know? Um, sure. But, um, uh, all right. So we, I, I want to move elsewhere on the world in a second, but we should, we should stay on this for one second. So my, my friend Bing West, 15 years ago, he made this case to me 10 years ago, something like that. He was like, look, we can't do the nation building stuff, but at the same time, we can't completely withdraw. What we need to do is basically control Kabul and, um, and have the ability to do limited missions outside of that region. But if you control Kabul, you cannot control the country. You cannot turn it into a terrorist safe haven. And it's not ideal, and you'd have to do it indefinitely, and blah, 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 blah. And at the time, I thought that was a crazy argument. And now I basically am utterly persuaded by it. <laughs> um, if you had your druthers, uh, what would our policy vis-a-vis -vis Afghanistan be and why? This is where I get to my ambivalence, right? Because yeah. the part, part of my problem with answering this question is I just don't have any faith in the leadership to execute any mission at this point. I think that they what they've been saying for years isn't true and doesn't add up. And it was wrong at the time they were saying it. And it was it's definitely wrong now. And, you know, for can example, get, can, for the sake, I mean, I know where you're coming sure. from on this because I, yeah. I, I've had to sit on too many long train yeah. rides next to Steve. So he rants about these things. But like yeah. what um what are like two, three one, two, or three concrete examples of what you mean about lies and incompetence all along, so people know where you're coming from on this. Well, I'll give you, I'll give you one example. That sticks out in my mind, and this may be a little controversial, but you know, former Secretary of Defense Jim Mattis, um, you know, the, the Defense Department has been basically whitewashing what the Taliban's political goals are in Afghanistan, and this was evidenced when Jim Mattis a couple of years ago there was this missive that was put out. The statement was put out by Habatu Al Ghanzada, the Emir of the Taliban, and uh, I think. Secretary of Defense Mattis was basically just repeating what he had heard from other people in the Defense Department. I doubt he read the statement himself, but he was saying, you know, this is the most forward-leading peace plan, peace proposal we've had since then. Now, I could translate the Arabic version if I had to. I can't translate the Pashtun version, but I didn't need to translate any version because they put it up in English on the website. <laughs> there was not a hint of peace in that thing, you know? And so I had no idea what he was even talking about because I, I looked at this thing and I sent it around to military sources and military officials. And I said, can you point to the, the part of this statement that actually says there's some sort of peace offering being made by the Taliban here? And nobody could, right? And so I posted a PDF of it at the Long War Journal and I just mm -hmm. sort of threw down the gauntlet and said, go ahead and tell me where there's peace in this. But that sort of delusion um, has been in, infected this war effort for a long time. I mean, there's just all sorts of, of tired talking points we hear, including that the Taliban are tired. Right. Mm -hmm. This was a mil U.S. military talking about. No, they're not. Right. I mean, you have one of the you have this youth bulge in the Pashtun, uh, you know, border areas there of Afghanistan and Pakistan. that's been, you know, fueling this jihad and this insurgency for a long time. You know, one of the great ways to take advantage of that youth bulge is to send them off fighting. You know, mm -hmm. they're not tired. They have a whole gen younger generation that's ready to, to fight and carry on. That's part of the problem. Right. That's part of why this insurgency has gone the way it has. And so I would say what I would say to people is, you know, I, the reason why I have a hard time answering your original question is because I just I just have documented so many failures here and so and just basic stuff, right? Like mm -hmm. people don't even understand what the basics are of that's happening. 
that it's very tough for me to make a recommendation in any regard here and why I ultimately understand why somebody would say, forget it, I just want out, you know? Um, now, the real the, the realist in me, if I could uh, do a, the real realist, not the fake phony realist, right? but the real realist who looks at the facts would say, I think you can make a, a case for ongoing small support mission for the government of Afghanistan, for sure, to do some, mm. a version of what Bing West recommended to you, right? You could do a version yeah. of that. And because the thing is, is that as problematic as the U.S. military effort has been um, in Afghanistan, for a long time, what it's been has been to try and prevent the Afghan government from collapsing. There's value in that, you know? Um, you know, not a single provincial capital is controlled by the jihadis today um, in Afghanistan. They, they have, my colleague Orojo has documented in great detail their gains throughout all the rural countryside, which is problematic and important because they're closing the noose on all these different places, right? Um, but, you know, one of the things that the ongoing U.S. mission, uh, U.S. and NATO mission has done is prevented them from taking over the more so-called urbanized areas of Afghanistan and then basically enslaving the population there. You know, that's that's yeah. important, you know. So you can make a case for that sort of limited thing. But I always do with the qualification that I, I don't really have any faith in our leadership to do any of this at this point. So, yeah, I mean, look, I mean, I, I hear what you're saying and I understand why you want to get the hell out of this stuff. <laughs> but, um, you know, the. Part of most of human progress in human history unfolds through muddling through. Yeah. Right. And um, this is not a defense of corruption. It is not a defense of malfeasance and incompetence or any of that kind of stuff. But in the shadow of the corruption and the malfeasance and the incompetence, you look at the statistics that the White House put out. I mean, I, I, I kind of resent being the one having to talk about like the incredible gains of of girls and women in afghanistan that's not my job right you know but um they're really heartwarming you know the ex extensions and longevity and again that's not the reason why we're there and it can't be the primary justification for why we're there right but you know as, as you laid out here and as you know and as david french has been arguing for all the shortcomings if your realist argument is we're not there to nation build but if there's some nice nation building that happens under our protection that's nice you know if it's good nation building if it's if it's it's building up civil society and 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 educating girls and women and all these kinds of things if that's happening that's gravy and that's good but at the same time if the if the strategic goal here was to prevent al-qaeda or taliban from having the win that we're basically now hand, handing them to them, it's been a big success. And um, we've wasted yeah, I mean, a lot of money to buy, pay for that success. You know, we haven't gotten it cheap. I agree with that entirely. But um, that's, you know, and so one of the things that drives me crazy about the argument that Biden makes about, you know, can't be conditions-based because that means we'd be there forever. I don't want to be there forever. Right. But there are all sorts of things in life that you don't, apply that logic to like we're never going to get past crime and like biden says oh if you can't describe to me the conditions that are going to allow us to get out of there then we should leave immediately because otherwise we'll be there forever well by that logic let's get rid of cops by that logic let's get rid of firemen because you know you can't describe to me the conditions in the future when we're not going to have fires anymore um and paramedics i mean you can go down a long list of things and that's not me saying i want to be the world's policeman but in the in the because we're not the world's policeman but like but in the context of Afghanistan, having 2,400 troops there who have about the same casualty rate as troops in California, um, uh, to, to have these other successes come along, you know, the, for these other benefits, 
despite your bitterness, seems like a reasonable position to take. Yeah, no, it, it, it is reasonable. I, I'm not saying it's unreasonable. I just, it, my bitterness, however, just makes me always qualify it. You know, I mean, I, I can, sure I can, I can, I can make the, I can make the case very clearly for exactly what you're saying. I mean, you know, I, the nation building thing always bothers me because yes, America has wasted a ton of money in Afghanistan. We won't get off on that, but a ton of money. Um, but, um, you know, part of it isn't really involved in nation building right now and hasn't been for quite some time. And really what they're doing is preventing the Taliban and Al Qaeda from building a nation. Right. And that that's the point, right? That that's problematic. People haven't thought through here. Um, and that I think president Biden, and his team haven't thought through here is what happens when this thing rises now throughout the first rest of the first term of his administration. He's now going to own the side effects now that are going to come out, come out of this. Um, but yeah, but the other thing is, you know, to your point about, you know, conditions based withdrawal, what President Biden was really saying, in my view, was he wants out, and you can't tell him that he, that he can get out in a year from now, as opposed to now, and I think things are going to be any better. That's basically mm-hmm. what he was really saying, you know. And the logic there, within if you've already made a decision, you want out, then the logic there makes sense, right? If you just like basically, because he's right, like you're not going to be able to say in 2021, later in 2021, 2022, there's a better time to get out than than now. So, in, in once you made a decision, you want out. I understand that. However. The thing is, and this is where this is this is different. Your point about Afghanistan versus other places, um, we've already made a commitment or have made commitments to the government of Afghanistan and to the Afghan war. Um, if what's the effect of saying now, as the State Department and really a lot of folks in the elite now in Washington have said, basically, ah, oh, well, you know, to hell with the government of Afghanistan. We're going to throw them under the bus on the way out. You know, they they were they really were part of the problem all along. Um, I mean that's problematic, right? Both from the U.S. not just the, not just perceptions of American power, but from a moral perspective, intellectual right. perspective, from security perspective. From you know, I'm not justifying the sunk cost of everything that was wasted in Afghanistan, but we're at a much reduced posture now with much less expenditures, and nobody's making the case that that much reduced expenditures is sort of off limits and is is causing big problems for us. So that's a big problem. And you know, to to my point, what I'm basically saying in all this is if, if you look at the press coverage of this. Look at how much scrutiny there is of Ashraf Ghani, the president of Afghanistan in Kabul, the Kabul government, and then compare that to how little scrutiny there is of Abu Talak and Zada, the Emir of the Taliban, and the other senior Taliban leaderships, right, uh, t- leaders. The perceptions in this stuff in America have become very skewed, right, mm-hmm. to the point where I think a lot of people couldn't even tell you who we were really fighting in Afghanistan, like in mm-hmm. terms of who's who and how this works and everything. And so that's a big part of the problem as well. But uh, none of that means that I th- I want to throw the Afghan government under the bus on the way out. Just I'm I'm conflicted about going forward here because of just documenting so many problems here in the past, yeah. you know. Um if I were a official in the foreign ministry of Taiwan, I would be right. looking at what we're doing in Afghanistan with considerable concern, right? I mean, like this is you know, I mean this sent this this there's a moral hazard here. Um yeah, you, about you our just said it better that's what I was looking for, the moral hazard of it, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so let's let's move on there. So like uh, I've been saying on this podcast for a while now that that the easiest bet to make about where our foreign policy politics are going in the next decade is that we're going to be much more hawkish towards China. And that's mm-hmm. fine. The only choice is between dumb hawkery and smart hawkery. Yeah, right. And um, so how do far how do you how do you think that's unfolding right now in the great eternal battle between dumb hawkery and smart hawkery? vis-a-vis china <laughs> well you know I, I actually before i started writing about china for vital interest and for the dispatch i actually been reading up on this for about six seven years so i don't know if you can 
probably can't see it, but the library behind me, I've got, you know, whole bookshelves full of stuff on Bao and, and history of China and the mm-hmm. whole thing. And I, I was starting to come to my own conclusions about what was going on before this increasing hawkishness came about in Washington. Um, I think it was a long, long time overdue. And I agree with you that there has to be smart hawkishness versus dumb hawkishness. We have to figure out exactly what our policy is going to be. And, you know, quite frankly, having documented the incompetence of the post 9-11 period, I am certainly not one who is pining for war with China uh, sure. at all. You know, uh, I think we have to be very careful here at what we do. However, I'm also very, very skeptical and downright critical, as I already teased earlier in the podcast, of the idea pitched by Kissinger and others that there could be some grand bargain where there's this balance of power and we don't have to worry about, we can just come to some terms with, with the Chinese Communist Party and therefore we can avoid conflict in perpetuity if we just give them X, Y, and Z. Um, and it's always unspecified what that is. And the reason for that is because, you know, I, I guess here's, let me put it this way. One of the things you hear Kissinger saying now, and I've just been itching to get a Kissinger, so this is, this is <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to do, do this. Uh, you know, one of the things you hear uh, Kissinger say now is that, well, if the U.S. and China aren't careful, um, you know, there could be another World War One type situation, a devastating war. Mm-hmm. And I think every time I hear him say that or quoted as saying that, I think, boy, have you not really thought through the implication of that? The implication of that is that the policies you've been recommending for decades now are in fact a failure because you helped build China into such a threat that there right. could be a World War One, you know, uh, between the two sides. You know, the, all this, you know, sort of policy that you had was building up the Chinese Communist Party. Um, that's what got us to this point, you know, uh, because it, you, you lacked any kind of real clear realism on all this stuff, what's going forward. So, um, you know, I, I think. Basically, what I, the way I look at this, just your dumb versus smart hawkishness point, is what I'm trying to do is just figure out the facts of what's going on, right? Let's figure out where things are, what works, what doesn't work, um, and what what is it that China is actually doing, the Chinese Communist Party, in terms of behavior. And that's what's interesting to me, are the developments of that have happened across, it happened concurrent with the Trump administration. It's an interesting argument whether or not it would happen with or without the Trump administration, but concurrent with the Trump administration, you saw this repositioning of Department of Justice and the FBI and various other parties to say, look, we need to get get real about what the CCP is doing here in the U.S. in terms of corporate espionage, in terms of planning students at our universities to steal secrets instead of just coming for learning. This whole range of behaviors. And I think that is really the starting point for a discussion of what we should do is figure out exactly what the Chinese are doing and then what we find off limits. Um, if that makes sense. No, it makes sense. I mean, I think... You know, I've been trying to find, I know you like reading history and historical analogies too, like the problem, first of all, I am, I am like, I have decided that there are, that, that it does not matter if a country calls itself communist anymore because that, (laughs) that is pure branding nonsense. And, um, you know, and my, my, favorite example of this is North Korea, which they got all the Marxist Leninism out of their constitution or their charter, whatever it is in the eighties. And basically they are now a divine right of Kings monarchy with, uh, uh, you know, primogeniture, you know, lineal, you know, patrilineal, uh, entitlement to the throne. They have all, I think Christopher Christopher Hitchens, the late Christopher Hitchens, you called it a necrocracy. I'm mispronouncing it. Necrocracy. I'm mispronouncing it, butchering the word, but basically, yes. I mean, basically where they would continue to worship the dead. Yeah. And they have, they have, it's caste system. They have serfs. If you're a descendant of someone who 
work with the Japanese. Um, you know, you are sort of an untouchable low member yeah. of, and all that kind of stuff. And, and so the fact that China calls itself communist, um, to me, it's sort of boo bait for the Chinese and boo bait for the people who around the world who think that that's a good brand name, you know, and yeah. that makes you I mean, a boob. It's a hybrid system. It's a weird system, you know. It's corporatist. Well it's whatever. Yeah. But I mean, it, like I mean, it's, it's, it's nationals. But my point is, is that it's, it's hard to come up with a historical analogy. People who say we're entering another Cold War. Fine. If you just mean a period of heightened tensions where we're not actually in a hot war. Fine. That's a fine use of it. But comparisons to the Soviet Union are just so off in so many ways because the Soviet yeah. Union yeah. was an economic basket case. Right. And, um, and while Stalin had some luck marshalling nationalist fervor, the Chinese have institutionalized it in ways, at least among the Han Chinese, that is just much more effective and much better. And moreover, they're just, they're growing fast. So I mean, like one of the analogies I played with for a while was, because when we think of it was World War I, was, you know, Germany at the beginning of the 20th century. They wanted their mm -hmm. place in the sun. They felt they had been aggrieved. They were one of the last countries to unify one of the last countries to industrialize and they felt like they were owed more respect than they had. And that's why they mm -hmm. were so aggressive and blah, 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 blah. Because at the same time, Germany was like the lingua German was like the lingua franca of science. They were all, they were cultured, they were advanced, they were rich, were getting rich. And I still don't think it's the best analogy, but it's the only, it's, it's one of the only ones I can come up with that helps you understand why it's not like the Soviet U S Soviet problem, because I mean, China is very, it's it's poorer on a per capita basis, but it's richer than any adversary that we've had to deal with, except, I don't know, maybe Great Britain, you know, 200 years ago, 250 yeah. years ago. So, I mean, like, what is the best historical analogy to the, the, the period that we're in that, that you can come up with? I mean, do you have one? You don't have to have uh, one. I don't have one. It's a great question. I don't have one. And, and, you know, part of, and again, just to get back to my, uh, uh, Kissinger Bassey. Yeah, it's my animosity for Henry Kissinger. Uh, you know, he always likes to compare matters to sort of mid nineteenth century Europe and say that some sort of balance because he wrote of power. his PhD on Metternich or something, right? Yeah, it's it's this weird obsession with it, which you know, I mean, okay, you can appreciate the balance of power in Europe in mid nineteenth century without, but still understand that that really has very limited use for understanding what's going on right now, right? Uh, you know, and it also it's a very curious historical analogy because it's sandwiched in between the Napoleonic Wars and World War One. So it didn't end well, right? It didn't start well and it didn't end well. And there was all sorts of turmoil in Europe throughout the mid-19th century as it was anyway, the revolutions of 1848 and all sorts of problems to begin with. So it's sort of a very curious way to, to view everything constantly. But um, I mean, look, I, th I think it is a very different thing because you just got to it. I mean, China's a different place, right? It isn't, they learned from the fall of the Soviet Union. So they they realized they needed to be richer than they were in order to stave that off, right? So they adjusted their policies accordingly. They did that. You know, they, 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 they built up the accumulated wealth in order to make sure that they didn't have the same economic anxieties that, that the Soviets had. Um, they do have, I think, a strong, I think you're right, they have a stronger internal nationalist sense, although they have problems, obviously, in Xinjiang and, and Tibet and with mm -hmm. Hong Kong and, and elsewhere. But they still have this, this stronger internal sense. I do think that they have externally they're weaker ideology, ideologically speaking, because they don't really have an ideology that can be exported. You know, the Soviets could say, well, you know, to right. people around the world, you know, 
we're, we're fighting for this workers revolution or the communist ideology. The Chinese don't really have that same sort of sales pitch, you know, uh, to tell people it's more of this, uh, autocracy sort of, you know, unification theory that they have, you know, although, um, you know, just not to drop, but uh, there's a caveat on that because particularly in the 1990s, but it's still in the early two thousands, they still have a strange, seductive power for certain Western elites definitely think that democracy is a problem, particularly the second you start talking about climate change um, for some people like Tom Friedman, they, they, they get all soft for autocracy and there is, and which is very similar to the, 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 the standing that you had in the early 20th century for Mussolini and, and the Soviet union um, among elites because it was all about planning and expertise and technocracy. And there's still that kind of thing that is seductive, which is not seductive to the person in the street. It's definitely seductive to the person right. in, in like the sort of the think tank or the boardroom. Well, that gets to a whole other basket of issues, which, uh, you know, my, my grand theory of what's happening in America is that there is a failure of the elite across multiple sectors of our society, you know, and I think that that what you just touched on is one of the symptoms of that, you know, mm. basically, and you, I mean, you've written way more about this than I have and probably thought about it way more than I have, you know, um, but, you know, when you stop wanting to take your own side in a fight or defending your own civilization, right. or your own history, then, yeah, you can you can be easily seduced by the Chinese Communist Party in the name of climate change or some other sort of goal of the day. You know, um, I think that that's true, you know, um, and that that's part of my general skepticism and, and my grim outlook on things is that I think we're witnessing such a failure across the board here um, that it's, it's very tough now to, to make decisions on all these issues because, you know, I, I think we've lost a sense of what it means to be, you know, what, what we're defending and what right. we're protecting and going forward. And that, once you lose that, um, that's the one place where I think the Chinese Communist Party have a clear advantage over us is that, you know, we're sort of, you know, caught in this psychological, breakdown, you know, of, of self this endless cycle of self-flagellation. Whereas I don't think the Chinese communist, 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 black Chinese communist party for all its problems and all of its internal divisions has nearly that same sort of psychosis going on, you know? So, um, although they have other problems, so maybe, um, yeah. but you know, but, but the point is, is that, you know, I, I think that to your, what you're saying is it's sort of, it's not the Tom, the Tom Friedman's of the world are saying, well, you know, I really like that Soviet style communism. I think that's a better model to build society on. It's, you know, it's having power centralized in the state can allow me to achieve the policy goals that I put, right. put forth uh, ahead of everything else. So it's not as much an ideological thing saying that the Chinese Communist Party, the CCP has an ideology I'm, I'm attracted to so much as it has power I'm attracted to. Yeah, it's know? power worship. I agree. It's entirely yeah. power worship. Yeah. And yeah. the rest of it just sounds clever, you know, and, um, and, and America has always had this, remember in the 1980s, I mean, I'm a little older than you, but like the nonsense we would hear about Japan, you know, was, yeah. uh, you know, that they were going to own us that, that, you know, there's this great scene where John Malkovich in, um, line of, was it line of fire? The Clint Eastwood secret service agent movie where John Malkovich is pretending to be a businessman and he's yeah. talking to these donors and he's like, in America, we think about the next quarter. In Japan, they think about the next quarter century. Yeah, and right. and the guy's like, we got to get this kind of thinking in front of the president. You know, <laughs> yeah, right, yeah, right. This is some sort of basic, you know, cliche line. You know, yeah, exactly. Um, yeah. No, I mean that, you know, that's like, going on too. I mean, you know what? You don't want to overestimate 
Beijing either, right? I mean, at right. that point, exactly. yeah, I mean, yeah, you know, I mean, like, you know, one of the things I, I think you've written about this too, is that one of the things I always hesitate when we talk about the strategic um, brilliance of our adversaries, right? Because I think, wait a minute, you know, yeah, they may be thinking more strategically than we are at the moment, but, you know, as the original economist to me will tell you, right, you want to project out a year from now or five right. years from now or 10 years from now, yeah, good luck with that. I mean, it, it's so problematic, you know? Yeah. Uh, it, 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 it's very difficult. No, this is one of the things that actually infuriates me that even the best business press, you know, which tends to be better at being oddly given what the first amendment is really about is about holding people in power accountable. Business reporters tend to be more skeptical than political reporters, yeah. um, which is yeah, yeah. weird when you think about it. But, uh, even the business press, they will report China's economic growth numbers, all this stuff. As if they're necessarily Uncritically, true. just like yeah. China recorded 6.8% growth. And talk to Derek Scissors about this stuff. I mean, you know, like there's zero reason why you shouldn't at least say China claimed to grow, blah, 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 yeah. blah. Or, you know, without revealing their methods or their the, the reliability, their statistics, they, you know, I mean, like, and you've even had... I remember a few years ago, there was a Chinese official, maybe it was Xi himself, but somebody sort of went off script and said, look, if you really want to understand how our economy is doing, look at like um, railway usage yeah. numbers because those aren't faked, you know? <laughs> and like, yeah, right. um, and so like, I agree with you. Like, like, like Friedrich Hayek wasn't just talking about progressive Europeans. He was talking about human beings that, Planning is hard. Totally, you know all that yeah. stuff. And he was he was talking about how you know you, you earlier in the podcast you talked about how humanity moves forward, and you talk about muddling through. And I think muddling through is, is definitely a good way of putting it. You could also say through competition, through sort of you know this process where competing ideas and products and services compete against each other to figure out what's best. And you know it's very hard a lot of times to assess. You know. China has had to try to foster a certain amount of internal competition because they realized they couldn't actually succeed at all if they didn't. Right. But it's very, it's very difficult to, which sort of, it's a high, sort of a high point, you know, uh, that they kind of had to recognize, but, um, or a high truism, but, you know, it's very difficult for an outsider to assess that competition to figure right. out what actually is going on with it. That's, the, that's the problem, you know? Yeah. No, it's a black, so, they're just, it's, it's, it's not yeah. a black box. It's, a massive field of some black boxes, some half open black boxes, some, you know, and you, you just don't know. But the idea that you're throwing off all of these billionaires in a place that has basically a corporatist semi-state control, you know, state, it's not state controlled. It's not, you know, there's, but it's, there's so much corruption. And this is why I was saying, but don't pay attention to the label communist. It has much more in common with like 19th century sort of quasi monarchical systems where you have an aristocracy of the young princelings who are like the mm -hmm. children's of the, the, the party leaders, the party is, is like an aristocracy. And also you have, um, you know, one of the ways that like monarchs made money was by selling licenses and monopolies yeah. to Lords who then kicked back, you know, some of the proceeds and that those sorts of analogies work a lot better than, you know, calling it even like Japan, which has all sorts of issues too. Yeah. But, um, um, and so like, I know I am the, the doe eyed optimist here, but you know, a lot of my friends, they just say that, you know, the bet on China becoming democratic, if it got rich has failed. 
Um, and it hasn't worked. And I always just want to say yet. And that doesn't mean that we should continue to have a policy of helping China get rich. That's not my argument. My only point is, is that we've unleashed things. We've helped unleash things in China that bedevil autocratic rulers throughout history. You make people rich, you give them access to information um, you give them access to travel. The idea that like, I mean, like a friend of mine who's a China expert said, the one thing you always got to remember whenever you're talking about China is that the Chinese Communist Party is almost as afraid of the people as the people are afraid of it. And it helps you just understand the dynamics of why they're trying to stay one step ahead with the social credit score stuff and all of that. And so let's not, let's not just wildly assume that China is just managing its own stuff perfectly they could have all sorts of problems erupt that we don't can't foresee because of all of these black boxes. And one of them could actually be a nascent democratic movement. I'm not saying it's likely, but I'm not saying it's, you know, if I'd said democracy is going to, uh, the Soviet Union is going to fall in 1986, a lot of people would laugh at me, you know, and then you know, five years later, you know, less than the run of friends or whatever in terms of years. Uh, it did, you know, so, I mean, things can change. Events, dear boy, right? That's the line. Um, yeah. Anyway, I, I'm, 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 I'm monologuing here. So back to you. No, well, well, actually, there's, there's a point on that I want to just build on, which is, you know, the thing I, that I've kind of learned throughout doing all this is that a lot of times the foreign policy discussions, they always rest on these prior assumptions that are made. Right. And then every, all the analysis is built around those assumptions you know, without ever questioning the underlying assumption, you know, and my point when I, when I look at now the history of the U S relations with China, for example, and I've been saying this very carefully, especially from 1979 onward is I don't want to make any assumptions, right? I just want to observe the behavior and understand what they're doing and then mm -hmm. make policy according to that without assuming anything. I mean, you're absolutely right that a lot of this is a black box. You know, if, if you think about that, um, that paper, the, a longer telegram that was done by that anonymous American anonymous official, you know, basically saying this is what we need to map out for this strategy for confronting China. You remember that that came out a few months ago? Yeah, yeah. yeah. At first, I thought you were talking about the Kennan memo when I was like, it's it's supposed to be it's supposed to be the Kennan for okay. China, basically. Yeah, that's what it's supposed to be. Um, if you look at that, I mean, it just basically has a bunch of assumptions in it that I don't. I mean, maybe they're right, maybe they're not. I mean, for example, one of them was, and this is the contrary point to what you're saying, is that. You know that Xi Jinping, by acquiring power and consolidating his economic wealth and everything, he's he's created all these problems within the Chinese Communist Party. This resentment toward him, and that you know it's very fragile, and you know this and that. I mean, it's certainly possible, but I didn't see any evidence in the paper of explaining who that is or why that is. You know, and and how yeah. how numerous those people are, and how much of a threat they are. There was no way to quali you know quantify what he's what this author was talking about. There was no details. There was no evidence. You know. And so what I'm saying is what I'm trying to get in terms of understanding foreign policy going forward is, and I've been trying this for a long time and I'm certainly imperfect at it, is just trying to build based on what I can observe first and foremost, what do I, what do I, what am I looking at? Right. And then build it out from there as opposed to leading with an assumption. Um, so if you had to guess if China attacked Taiwan, does America come to her defense? And should she? Um, I, mean, I mean, like, should we? Well, the U.S. has been pursuing the porcupine strategy with Taiwan, obviously, trying to arm Taiwan of the teeth, especially during the Trump years, to basically raise the cost of a invasion by Beijing. Would the U.S. intervene directly from a military perspective to, to try to save Taiwan? 
Um, I think that really ultimately comes down to statesmanship and whether or not the how President Biden at this point views it. I don't know. I don't know what his views are and whether or not he wants to make take that risk or not. You know, I do know, and this is where this is where what I have to say is very tough for me to articulate. But I am not confident in our U.S. military's ability to execute a good strategy in that regard, um, just based on everything I've been watching. Uh, and the 9-11 wars and sort of how we've become confused in so many different ways about what's going on. Um, I'm not confident that the U.S. military's leadership um, and, and the lack of competition, really, to, to determine who should be our leaders within U.S. military circles um, has led to a point where we would be able to execute that mission to the best of our abilities, what I would say. Um, and that, that that's not a knock on just so you understand, that's a, that's basically looking at things from I'm very much a patriotic American, or I like try to be. As you can tell by my T-shirts, I'm sitting here doing this on Zoom. <laughs> you know, I got my, got my, got my, uh, you know, I I very much want to respect, and I do respect the U.S. military and service members, and everything. But I have become very critical now of the U.S. military leadership and their ability to accurately assess what it is they're doing. Yeah, I mean, so uh, mine I mean, she's primarily at Stanford now, but she was on this podcast she was on the remnant a while back um because i'm i'm you know she may be right or wrong about things i i I, my expert level expertise level is not high enough to judge but i was wildly impressed by oriana schuyler mastro um and she's very realistic about china's realism and one of the arguments that she makes is that that she the way Xi looks at things is he looks about, looks at things like, can I succeed or not? If I can succeed, then I will do it. If I cannot succeed, I will not do it because failure and the loss of face and, and all of those things, particularly at something where you've revved up nationalist sentiment is worse than not trying. So he's very just sort of, can I do it? Can I not do it? And her, her argument is that, Basically, if they think they can successfully take Taiwan, they will take Taiwan. And until that day, they won't. And she's very skeptical. I'm not sure she's right about this. You know, like Mike Gallagher, the stuff you were talking about, about the porcupine strategy, Mm -hmm. you know, um, this idea of basically giving them, you know, basically turning them into the Wolverines from Red Dawn, right? So if they get invaded, they can just be a headache for China for a long time. She's very skeptical of that because simply because the the because Taiwan has no strategic it doesn't have the strategic depth and that it, the, and the Chinese are perfectly willing to kill lots of civilians in order to right. end that kind of thing really quickly mm-hmm. and um and so I mean I, I think for the U.S. I mean I know we don't want to like credit Kissinger on anything here but. It seems Never. to me the strategic ambiguity stuff, yeah, w- vis-a-vis Taiwan, is a better recipe for a World War One type situation than us being very clear that Taiwan is our ally, and um, and that we are going to protect it, and the Sixth Fleet or whoever is going to be parked out front, and you have to go through us to get to them. If we think that that's in our interest to do that, you know, then we should be clear about it. But being ambivalent about that or equivocal about that or on a black box about that is really, really dangerous at this point. At least that's where my head is at on this stuff. 
I think that's probably right. I mean, I, that's what I'm saying about being an issue of statesmanship. It comes down to the calculation by the president, right? Whether or right. not the president wants to put all the chips on the, the middle of the table and say, I'm going to defend Taiwan. That's And then if that decision is made, then does the U.S. military have the leadership capability to do that? And what I'm drawing into question are sort of both levels of that. You know, I, I doubt that we have the political will at this point to do that. Um, you know, I, I'm, not, I'm not certain one way or another. I just doubt it. And then I don't have any confidence based on what following the U.S. military leadership for years that they could actually execute that strategy if we had to. Um, and so uh, that's where and that's, you know, again, when I say something like that, there are probably people who are bristling at me talking like that. But listen, I got way too many examples of failures. You know, I mean, we, we start off this podcast talking a lot about Afghanistan. The easiest way to get your fourth star in U.S. military was to go punch your clock in Afghanistan, not win a single battle and then go take a cushy consulting job or whatever afterwards. You know, I mean, it's sort of that's problematic from my perspective, you know? Mm. Um, so, you know, I, I don't, I don't know. And it's different in Indo-Pacific command, of course, but I think whatever, I agree with you on this sense. What I would say is that whatever we're going to do, you better figure that out You mm. better, and make a commitment to it in one way or another and figure out what you mean by that. You know, I mean, I think Kissinger was, I think according to some sources was very willing to sell out Taiwan a long time ago, you know, yeah. you know, uh, and that, makes the argument that he was truly a, a pro-democracy actor all along a little tougher for me to swallow, you know, a lot tougher, you know. I mean, one of the, uh, one of the fascinating things about Kissinger is how, like, he was, he had earned the animosity of both serious sort of Scoop Jackson and further right neocon serious. Yeah, and the left, know, yeah. And then, and also the hard left. You yeah, know, right. like Christopher Hitchens, was great because he could like explain to you from both sides of his schizophrenic yeah, point of view right, exactly why he hated Kissinger and you and yeah, you have right. to, he was like now let, now let me give you my right wing reasons for hating Kissinger <laughs> you know? I was I was actually at a talk where Kissinger it was a it was a uh, honorary thing for Norman Potter Potter uh-huh. uh, you know a while ago and Kissinger made that point about Norman as well that he criticized him from the left and then he criticized him from the right it was the yeah. same sort of dynamic you know. I criticize him from just, you know, here's what you said. Does this make any sense? No, you know, and by the way, you know, I, 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 to me, I think that that's a guy I, earlier I said, I compare him to the Bernie Madoff of the foreign policy world because, you know, Bernie Madoff was exposed with the subprime mortgage crisis when all of his investors said, Hey, I want my money. And, you know, he didn't have it because he was just running a giant Ponzi scheme. You know, for years, Kissinger has been peddling access in China and mm-hmm. pretending like everything was going to have an okay outcome. And now he's telling us that World War One is on, we're on the verge of World War One if we don't come to some accommodation with this, you know, uh, foe that he helped build. I mean, it's just perverse, really, if you think about it, you know, yeah, I it's mean, a, it's, and, a good, and, it's an interesting point. I hadn't really thought about it. I mean, I do know that he's, he, he's been a, an interesting business model for a while, to be sure. Have you seen him in person I, in the last five years? Not the last five years, no. But so I, uh, for some reason, I've 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 gotten on the the plane from D.C. to New York a couple times, and he's been like in the first first class yeah. seat. I mean, the guy first of all has to be what ninety eight, something like that. Yeah, something like that, late nineties. Yeah, he he looks Tolkien esque. I mean, it is is he he looks like you might know, like live under a tree making cookies. I mean, he's, he really is this yeah. weird kind of dwarf elfin kind of guy and i you know say what you will about his positions and his history and all that kind of stuff to have a functioning brain at his age where he can talk intelligently about anything whether he's persuasive or not 
is that alone is kind of impressive. It's sort of like Rumsfeld impressive, just like that he's still sharp at that age, you know? And, and that's basically where my attacks as a nerd come from, as I've gone through his arguments over time, even to now, and I don't find them persuasive. Like there's all yeah. things he's written and argued, which I just think are in some cases just drivel, you know, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I, I wrote this in one of the, the, one of the editions of vital interest for the dispatch, you know, for example, he plays this whole game and I, I you've been great on this point. So I wanted to bring this up. He likes to triangulate off of neoconservatives. Mm-hmm. So what he likes to do, he doesn't, it doesn't in one of his books on China, he likes to say, well, you know, the neoconservatives just want regime change in China. And so they're the equivalent of the Chinese hawks. And we have to have to come to a realist accommodation between these two destabilizing powers to come to some sort of accommodation, right? And of course, the neoconservatives who want just regime change at all at all costs aren't identified by name, right. and there's no estimate of how much power they have in Washington to affect policy, or whether or not there's anything real. They're pitching anything realistic, or that anybody's going to go by that. And any time I see the word neoconservative thrown around like that, that's immediately a tell for me as somebody, Absolutely. you know, because it's it's basically a caricature that they want to articulate against because it's an easy way to knock down. You know, it's easy to say, oh, the neocons that you know wherever FDD where I work or yeah. AEI or wherever, you know, they think X, Y, and Z and, you know, th- we don't want that, you know, and you're like, wait a minute, you know, first of all, what are you talking about? You know, I mean, define neoconservative. You've been so great on this. Like, what's the definition of neoconservative at this point? I, I have no idea, you know? Yeah. And then you have to, you have to explain why the person in question is a neoconservative and then why that person's ideas are so problematic as a neoconservative. And what I see in Kissinger's writings, for example, is that the, all that's missing. It's just basically, I'm going to take this, straw man and i'm going to elevate it all the way up to where i need it to be to knock it down to then make my point which i wanted to make all along you know yeah no i know like i mean like you're you're basically baiting me to talk about the uses and abuses intentionally Intentionally. (laughs) neoconservatism which um (laughs) we can do another time um yeah um i've uh yeah no i'm not gonna i'm not gonna take the bait i'm just not gonna do it uh this is the equivalent of me saying well, he really, you know, there really wasn't that much, you know, uh, incompetence and or corruption in Afghanistan in the last twenty years, and then saying, "Let's move on," <laughs> and not giving you a chance to respond. Yeah. Um, all right, man. Um, uh, we're we're running we're running out of time here, but um, is there any other like be in your bonnet about, you know, Russia or other foreign? What what is like? What is a foreign policy thing? What is a foreign policy threat that you think? It may not be the most most important foreign policy threat, but it's the most important foreign policy threat that just nobody's talking about. That nobody's talking about? Or not enough know. people think, are taking seriously. Yeah, I mean, look, I'll, I'll just return to this. I think, obviously, it's been a long time since 9-11, and we haven't had a similar style attack in America since then. So, sure, you don't want to overestimate the probability of something like that going forward. But one of the more curious aspects of my whole career doing this is just how much of the time in Washington and elsewhere has been spent trying to explain that threat away. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's really curious, you know, for all the money spent and all the wasted money spent and all the resources supposedly dedicated to this, I would say a greater amount of time since 9-11 has been spent trying to say why we don't have to worry about another 9-11 or don't worry about another big terrorist attack than it's been spent actually worrying about it. It's very strange, you know, thing in the american psyche you know where the political class has been doing this and all i'd say is i can't i don't have a crystal ball but i can say as the nerd who studies this stuff that the, you know terrorism is still out there and i think it can manifest itself in a number of different ways that maybe people are not really anticipating and i'm worried that all this that despite all the resources spent to contain this thing since 9-11 that that 
threat still lurks and that we don't really even still fully grasp it, believe it or not. Yeah, no, that's fair. I mean, I, I think you're right. It's, it's a lot that we could, we could chew on there. Um, um, you said, and I can't remember, I, I think you said it while we were recording, um, how much you regret choosing this life that you've chosen. Um, I don't know that we've actually gotten the answer to that. Um, uh, like, is it that you, you, you regret having focused so much on this slice of foreign policy stuff, or do you regret that you even became a, a national security geek at all? You know, this is probably going to sound self-serving, which is why I don't, you know, I have a hard time answering this question, but I like the ability to compete and I always want to compete. And I think that whoever wins the competition, those are the ideas that should be moved forward. Right. And what I've learned from doing this is that there's really no competition in what I do, that you can be pathologically wrong for years. And not only do you, I mean, not only do you not have to admit it to yourself and try and improve your analysis that nobody's going to hold you to account for it, you know? Mm -hmm. And so on Afghanistan, for example, you know, part of the reason why you hear this reservation in me about going forward. And even though I can articulate the problems of leaving and why ultimately I would still prefer to have a small presence there, you know? Um, but you know, Afghanistan is a great example of it. Like there was never any competition to figure out, you know, who was getting it right in terms of what was going on and how these groups were operating in Afghanistan. That, that the Hayekian sort of perspective on things of how knowledge has moved ahead and how humanity moves forward with understanding these things to my experience, is almost entirely lacking when it comes to these foreign policy issues. That basically people advance based on networking and glad-handing and that sort of thing, and not in terms of actually scrubbing arguments and trying to figure out what the right answer is. And I, I don't want to make this personal, but I mean, I just know that some of the people in, my in, this, in that field in particular, in the counterterrorism world in particular, some people who just haven't gotten anything right in a long, long time are still regarded as, you know, the top of the field. And it just, it's kind of frustrating, you know, to see that somebody who you can prove that they were wrong, you can show it's obvious they're wrong. You know, somebody who was saying, you know, ISIS is just a local phenomenon. Don't worry about it. <laughs> Whoops. You know, right. you know there, and there's no, there's no, if I made that error, I'd be like, whoa, you know, I need to figure out what I did wrong and get better, you know? Um, but in the field, you don't see that sort of come up and there's no external force to make that happen. And internally people don't have that sort of introspection, I would say. Um, there's a lot, <laughs> you know, that is a great topic to take yeah. on the sociology of expertise, particularly in Washington. Uh, you could do a whole podcast on, I mean, uh, if it, I don't know if it makes you feel better or worse, but I do not think for a moment that this is reserved for. No, it isn't the national but security world. I mean, like it is, Robert Reich's entire career can be explained right. by this phenomenon, you know? No, but I, but that's the thing is this field that I moved into is much more connected to the political elite and the political classes. Yeah. And where I was coming from in the economic world, it was not a panacea. It was not perfect. There are all sorts of problems. Right. But there was a competition. And I thought more often than not, if you had the better of the argument, you were going to win. Not all the time. You know, mm -hmm. obviously it didn't, it wasn't perfect, but there was this ability to say, you know, look, I, I would I would formally draft these expert reports and a lot of times it'd be rebuttals of other experts. And, you know, when we got them, we got them, right? Mm -hmm. The court, court more, most often not because a lot of stuff would be submitted to courts. So a lot of times the court would say, you know, you're right. You know, I'm either going to exclude this other testimony or I'm going to, you know, explain why this is wrong. It wasn't perfect. The court system's not perfect, but at least there was that sort of scrubbing, you know, mm -hmm. going on of this stuff. And to me, a lot of the stuff in, in what I've gotten into here is a lot of it's just re reaffirming confirmation bias, you know, just playing to the crowd, as you would say, you know, just telling people what they want to hear and not actually thinking through these issues and trying to figure out what the right answer is. And, you know, even in the last day, 
I've seen things written about Afghanistan. I'm like, that's just so obviously false that, I mean, how is somebody still writing that in 2021, you know? Mm -hmm. And there's just the utter lack of that competitive dynamic is really disheartening, I would say. Yeah, the reason why it's disheartening to me, I mean, one of the reasons why you find it in the world of economics and Wall Street is because um, there are actual real world metrics like if we had done, if we do X and we get this much of a return, but we did Y, we would have gotten that much yeah. of return. You can do after, you know, equivalent of after action, you know, scrubbing based on reality, right? And the reason why it's depressing that the way you're describing it about military stuff is that, A, the military is supposed to be really good at that, right? Because they do after action reports. They do, you know, they look, they look at what they did and try to figure out best practices and whatnot. Um, and also because American lives are on the line people you know young Bingo. young men are kill are being killed and if they're exactly. being killed for bad ideas then like you know i don't i like making fun of robert reich and tom friedman for being wrong about a lot of things but the stakes often aren't that big but they're you know they're real people's lives involved in in some of this stuff and so it's a little more just depressing to hear um well, you know, if, if medicine were you know, medicine is one of those places where you have competition right because you do right. you do X, and if X kills the patient, then in, and Y doesn't, then you you know you've A B tested it, and you'd think that the military would have and the national security world would have this down better, but that's why it is yeah. depressing. Just to give one example of that, and very briefly, and why I'm so down on U.S. military leadership. One of the things that we've documented about the U.S. military performance in Afghanistan is they set the standard. They say here's the standard that we have to accomplish, and this will be success. And then we would show or become clear that they hadn't met that standard. For example, the number of districts contested or controlled throughout Afghanistan. And then um, what they would do is they'd say, okay, we're now going to reclassify that data. We're going to suppress it. And we're going to move on. We're going to say that wasn't the standard at all. It's a new standard, you know? And that sort of thing happened over and over again. We'd say, well, wait a minute, you know, and people would say, well, you're, you're, you're just only looking at that. Well, no, wait a minute. You said this was the standard for performance, right? We looked at the metric. Mm-hmm. You didn't achieve your success. And then you just classified that metric and then moved on to another one, right? And then, by the way, you didn't achieve that one either, you know? And we've just documented that sort of thing over and over again. And that's what I mean by the lack of competition across, I think part of, you know, my grand thesis of all this, and this is at the end of the podcast, so we can't get into all this here. My grand thesis is there's, there is the sort of failure of the American elite across multiple sectors of our society. And part of the reason is that because it's it's come down to, it's this lack of competition a lot of times in this stuff. And lack and the lack of competition means there's a lack of accountability, right? Yeah. So, you know, Bernie Madoff was finally made accountable because of the subprime mortgage crisis. You know, I'm looking right. forward to the day that Henry Kissinger's held accountable for everything he did on China. So, um, which there's a long a- conversation. We'll, maybe we'll come back yeah. and we'll have this yeah. conversation from the beginning because there's a lot of Douglas North stuff here that we could talk about as well. It's about mm-hmm. the role of elites and how you need elite competition. Otherwise, you get, um, you, yeah, fall and into by the a way, bad that, form of government, you know. Yeah, and by the way, none of that means I'm not holding myself up as Mr. Mr. Great, okay? You know, like yeah. when I get something wrong, I want to correct it myself, yeah. right? And and I want somebody else to call me out on it when it's really wrong as opposed to just conflicting with somebody's ideology, you know? Right. Um, you know, I, absolutely, I make mistakes, you know. I'm constantly I, the way I've said it in one of the other podcasts I run, I say, you know, it's not about being right, it's about getting it right, right? There's mm-hmm. a process, right? And what I would say is that the, the process in these issues that I've been working on in the foreign policy realm and counterterrorism realm, that process is very broken, very broken. Yeah. And in fact, there, there really is no process. On that cheery note, yeah. buy gold. 
Uh, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> um, this is the second podcast where we've had, like, I, I just had Brian Riedel from Manhattan Institute. He went through our fiscal situation and it was super depressing as well. So um, I'm punishing everybody for criticizing my uh, getting drunk with, with Mike Gallagher on this podcast um, with these really <laughs> depressing podcasts. Anyway, uh, Tom Jocelyn, thank you so much for coming on. We will have you back. My apologies for waiting this long. It is my failure and uh, mine alone. And as you say, we should admit it when we don't get stuff right. So I should have had you on a long time ago, and I apologize for it. But thanks for coming uh, you on. Got, you got a lot going on. Thank you for having me. Okay, so uh, Tom Jocelyn has left the studio, as it were. Um, uh, as you can tell, I like talking to Tom. Tom's an interesting dude. Uh, Tom tries very hard to not inject opinions about various domestic politics things and all these kinds of things because he wants to, he's one of those guys that actually believes in staying in his lane, um, which I admire because it's so rare these days. And it's certainly not something that, that, that I practice what I preach about. Um, but uh, he really does know, like he is one of those dudes who has, if you were going to conceptualize his, brain in, in a visual form it is like a thousand post-it notes um on a grease board with you know in a bulletin board with pictures of people and ties of red thread linking people i mean he he's it's impressive that he has figured out how to train himself not to rattle off the names of like 35 different you know afghan or jihadi, whatever, you know, lieutenants, because he can do all that stuff. And it's really impressive and, um, and kind of scary. Uh, I was thinking about bringing it up with him, but I was afraid that he was going to have some grand, um, theory about it that we would have to take another 20 minutes on. Um, but when we were talking about China, um, I want, I, I thought of this memo. Um, it's, uh, um, I've written about it before. Um, um, uh, it's the it's written by this guy Lynn Wells, and um, we'll put a link to it in the show notes. And Rumsfeld has called it one of the best. He called it the best strategic memo he'd ever gotten, or something like that. And again, I've written about it before, and maybe I've talked about it on the podcast before. But um, when we were talking about like predicting what's happening next and having confidence about you know history moving in a straight line it always comes to mind and so i'm going to read maybe i won't read the whole thing but i'll i'll read enough for you to get a taste and it just it's called it's a one pager and it just says thoughts for the 2001 quadrennial defense review and it begins if you had been a security policymaker and the world's greatest power in 1900 you would have been a brit looking warily at your age old enemy france by 1910 you would be allied with France and your enemy would be Germany. By 1920, World War I would have been fought and won and you'd be engaged in a naval arms race with your erstwhile allies, the U.S. and Japan. By 1930, naval arms limitation treaties were in effect, the Great Depression was underway, and the defense planning standard said, quote, no war for 10 years. Nine years later, World War II had begun. By 1950, Britain no longer was the world's greatest power, the atomic age had dawned, and a quote-unquote police action was underway in Korea. Ten years later, the political focus was on the missile gap, 
The strategic paradigm was shifting from massive retaliation to a flexible response, and a few people had heard of Vietnam. By 1970, the peak of our involvement in Vietnam had come and gone. We were beginning detente with the Soviets, and we were anointing the Shah as our protege in the Gulf region. By 1980, the Soviets were in Afghanistan. Iran was in the throes of revolution. There was talk of our quote-unquote hollow forces and a quote-unquote window of vulnerability, and the U.S. was the greatest creditor nation the world has ever seen. By 1990, the Soviet Union was within a year of dissolution. American forces in the desert were on the verge of showing they were anything but hollow. The U.S. had become the greatest debtor nation in the world, and almost no one had, had heard of the Internet. Ten years later, Warsaw was the capital of a NATO nation. Asymmetric threats transcended geography, and the parallel revolutions of information, biotechnology, robotics, nanotechnology, and high-density energy sources foreshadowed changes almost beyond forecasting. All of which is to say that I'm not sure what 2010 will look like, but I am sure it will be very little like we expect, so we should plan accordingly. Lynn Wells. That's the whole thing. It's just a bunch of bullet points of one or two sentences. And, um, you know, we get so caught up. The only reason I read it, well, one, I love it, but two, we get so caught up in the moment and all the experts make these straight line projections off into the future. And, um, they're almost never true. And when they are true, very often it has a lot more to do with luck um, than it has to do with someone's brilliant insight. And we, and we have real world tests about all this, you know, because the number of stock managers who are above the average, um, more than like three years in a row, I mean, it's like a bell curve distribution. Um, it's very difficult to predict, um, you know, events 10 years out, never mind 20 years out, you know, even one year out. And, um, there are all sorts of policy things that flow from, from that observation, but we don't have time to get into them today. And they don't all, you know, necessarily align with the stuff I want to do or I'm in favor of because that's not my point. So anyway, uh, thanks for Tom Jocelyn for, for coming on. We'll put a link to the Lynn Wells thing in the show notes. And, um, again, if you can subscribe to the dispatch, uh, become a paid member, that would be awesome. You would get Tom's, uh, newsletter, which I, I, I am not kidding. You know, there are, there are many people inside the Pentagon, inside the state department in, in, in Republican and democratic administrations that consider Tom the, among the most useful, serious, um, uh, analysts of the stuff that he is an expert on, uh, in the world. And, um, I could tell you stories, but they're all uh, you know, they're, they're, they're all off the record, but I mean, I, I'm not making that up. I'm not exaggerating. He is, he really knows a lot of this stuff on a granular level. And I'm kind of excited to see him apply his sort of his, uh, mutant brain stuff to other national security questions in the future. Cause he's a, like a voracious reader, um, and a good dude. So with that, I'll see you next time. No, you won't. This is a podcast. Yeah.